Howdy. Welcome to another episode of Canon Calls. This week, I speak with Jay Perini, who once wrote a biography of Robert Frost. I've recently been down a rabbit hole on Robert Frost, and I've set aside his complete poems to go through, and then I also picked up a biography just to learn more about him, and I happened to pick up Jay's. So I highly recommend going and getting that. One book off the canon shelf I wanted to mention that I think pairs really well with sort of the world of poetry or what I enjoy about poetry. And it's Douglas Wilson's Angels in the Architecture, A Protestant Vision for Middle Earth. From the book, he says, the modern view of the world is empty and lifeless, nothing more than a bunch of matter in motion, with life by the thousandth chance emerging from chaos. The modern world, as a result, can only conceive of progress as more efficiency, more technology, more domination. In stark contrast to this, Christianity presents a glorious vision for culture and the vision of a world with truth, beauty, and goodness built into the very molecules of the universe. Medieval and Protestant Christianity began a conversation about truth, beauty, and goodness, but secularism ended the conversation mid-sentence. I highly recommend Angels in the Architecture. It's one of my favorite books on the canon shelf. As someone who didn't grow up in a robustly Christian culture, it portrayed to me exactly what I had been missing all along, which is the sweetness of Christ's forgiveness in a culture brewing over years and years and years and years. So go get that at canonpress.com. And without further ado, meet Jay Perini. All right, now welcoming on special guest Jay Perini. He's an American writer and academic. He is known for novels, poetry, biography, screenplays, and criticism. He has published novels about Leo Tolstoy, Robert Frost, and Herman Melville. Jay, thank you so much for giving us your time today. Jake, glad to be on with you. Well, I wanted to talk to you about, you've written all, all over the place about all kinds of fascinating people. I am deep down a Robert Frost rabbit hole currently. And I am reading your biography about him, and I thought I'd love to have you on and hopefully introduce a batch of people to who he is, if they've never heard, or we can properly guilt people into reading him, if that, if that, if that has to be the case. Does that sound good? <laughs> yeah, it sounds good. Let's make them feel very guilty. <laughs> awesome. Can, now, how did, uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to the idea of writing a biography for Frost? Well, it's funny. Frost is sort of, I've been in Frost's shadow my whole life. Um, I grew up in a small town in Pennsylvania, and I never read poetry. My family was not literary. My father was a Baptist minister. Okay. I never read poetry. Okay. And, um, <laughs> and um, I, um, one day in ninth grade, my teacher said, Jay, you're going to, here's, here's Robert Frost, po a poem by Robert Frost. Uh, stopping by woods on a snowy evening, and I want you to go home, and I want you to think about this poem and write a three-page paper and have it ready for me on Monday morning. I thought, oh, my life is ruined. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe this has happened to me. What's gone wrong? And so I went home, and I and then I read the poem, and I was like so astonishingly blown away. I read it again and again and again. I thought, how does that happen? How does somebody do that with language? And so that really turned me on to poetry. I was writing poetry of my own at the time, and I got really excited. And I, then I got Frost's collected poems from the library, and I started reading Frost, and I read him assiduously. And then my family was going on a vacation. I said, they said, where do you want to go? I said, I want to go to New England. 
I want to visit where the Frost Country. And my father said, what? I said, I want to go see where Frost lived up in New Hampshire and Vermont. And, and oddly enough, we went driving up to New Hampshire and Vermont. We went to Montpelier, Vermont, drove over to Breadloaf and to Middlebury, where I've been living my entire adult life in Frost Shadow. Um, so uh, it's almost unbelievable. And so my, my first job was, in fact, at Dartmouth College, which is where Frost was an undergraduate. Right. In 19, I started there in 1975, almost half a century ago. And uh, I remember going in, uh, my office was right next to the rare books room. And I went to the rare books room and I said, you got anything interesting here? And I said, yes, we just got all of the notebooks of Robert Frost and maybe a thousand letters. Wow. So I sat down and started reading them and I decided then and there to write a biography of Frost. And so I started reading Frost notebooks and letters and taking notes. And then I started interviewing people that knew Frost, you know, the old president from, uh, of Dartmouth, John Sloan Dickey. I met him and all these people that knew Frost. So pretty soon I had, you know, endless notebooks filled with interviews. I had tape recordings of interviews. I went over to other libraries, Amherst College, Middlebury, and listened to Frost tapes and looked at manuscripts. Um, and so, but it was over about a 25-year period I worked on this book and published it in like 19, uh, 2000, I published it, the year 2000. So that's like hmm, 20 years ago, right? That's right. So uh, I published it 20 years ago. And uh, I've never frosted, but he's never been out of my life. I continue to teach Frost every year. I continue to read Frost constantly. I'm asked by people like you to come and talk about Frost probably about 10 times a year. Wow. So, um, or more. So I'm, I'm constantly thinking and talking about Robert Frost, even though I've worked on, you know, a zillion other, other writers and uh, people and other, I've written, and I've written 30 books. I've written a lot of books. Now, I was going to ask, out of all the people that you have written about, it sounds like he's the one you're asked about most. Do you have any, do you have any guesses as to why? I think I get mostly asked to talk about Frost because Frost strikes a chord with the American soul. And I think that, you know, when people read Frost, they're blown away. The simplicity, the clarity, uh, the deep connection to landscape, the, the kind of uh, natural theology of his work, you know, his connection to spirit and nature, I think is just so uh, affecting. And it's so like anything else you can find anywhere else that I think people love it and, uh, and, and go for it and want, want to be around it. I, I mean, people want to live in that world of Robert Frost, of birch trees, and farm fields, and farmers working. It's a field, remember, it's a poetry of people and work. Um, there's hardly a poem which doesn't have a person somewhere, a boy swinging on a birch, a man plowing the field, somebody out there mowing hay, uh, you know, picking apples after apple picking is one of his great poems. I mean, Frost was himself, remember, actually a farmer. He was a farmer in New Hampshire. So he knew farm work. Is it the case that he is who you're asked to talk about most out of, out of what you've done? Out of yeah, what oh, I'm sure. Okay. I'm sure um, of all my books, yeah, Frost is certainly the person I'm most frequently asked to talk about. There's no question about it. I wanted to maybe start with sort of his younger years. Could you set the stage for us of like, what, what does somebody's childhood look like who ends up becoming who he was. Well, nobody, everybody startled to read my biography and realized that he spent his first 10 years, his first decade, 11 years, in living in the center of San Francisco. So he was actually a city boy. And, and so he didn't come to New England until he was like 12 years old. And I, I always say it's like, you know, people who get converted to the Catholic church or something, 
they become ushers very quickly. As the converts take up the mm. collection. Mm. So Frost, Frost took up the collection for um, Vermont and country. He was so blown away by what he saw, made such a deep impression on him when he was a young teenager that he stayed, you know, for the rest of his life. He wanted to live in the country and on a farm. And, you know, he was not raised a farm boy. His father, I mean, his father went to Harvard. His father was a newspaper editor. But then his father died when he was 11. And he and his mother and sister had to go by train back to Massachusetts where, and they moved in with uh, Mr. Fro- old Mr. Frost's family, the father's family. And they took, them, took in uh, the son and, and grandchildren, the daughter and the grandchildren. So Frost then went to high school in Lawrence, Massachusetts, where he split the valedictorian honors with Eleanor, his wife. Um, they were married you know, soon after they graduated from college. He, Frost, by the way, never did graduate from college. He always said schools and he didn't get along very well. And so he lasted, he was, Dartmouth makes a big deal out of it. When I taught there, I was amazed. Everybody said, oh, Frost went here. But Frost only spent six weeks at Dartmouth before he, he quit. And then he, he went to Harvard for a couple of years and dropped out a second time. Now, one, uh, one thing that was like really striking to me was, I believe his, you, you mentioned it, the valedict- he, he shared valedictorian honors. And his speech was something to the effect of uh, a monument to afterthought unveiled. Yeah. Now he he was homeschooled for most you know for the early years. Right. I mean, like if I were, <laughs> I was not a valedictorian. Right. For sure. And if I had been, it would have been like a really. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It would have not been something like an after a monument to afterthought unveiled. What, what is this? Is that a indictment on today's education? Is that a is that sort of an ode to who he was as a person? Yeah. How do I, I, think, I make sense know, of that? I, I think I think you make sense of it by the fact that Frost really understood that all education is self education. Frost was an extreme individualist, and I think that's one of the appeals of of him as a person. Sure. And I think he believed that you know, um, yeah, schools you can you can get something out of a school. But not too much, he thought. And he did. So interestingly enough, um, in s- starting in middle age, he began being a poet in residence at Amherst College. Then, then he taught, then he sort of off and on at Middlebury and places like that. But he was really never an academic and uh, never really sure. uh, a system. He was never a systematic uh, scholar of any kind. But in his own helter-skelter way, he was deeply, deeply learned. I mean, he could read, read, he read Greek and Latin. He read all the time. Right. He was interested in science. He, was, he subscribed to Science Magazine. He was Scientific American. He was really interested in the world, the natural world, the processes of the natural world. He was interested in everything. Yeah, like I said, it blew me away. I don't know what eighteen-year-old is ready to sort of, uh, you know, do a contemplation on how the on the effects of afterthought. On you know, know. It, it, it it was very uh, it was very striking. Now you did mention he he didn't quite finish college. He was in and out. What what were the? Is it because he couldn't handle it? Well, what were the reasons he never finished college? Well, he could handle it. He just was. He would get bored with classes, <laughs> and he would just not stop. Tur- he would just stop turning up. And and yeah. uh, if he turned up, he did very brilliantly. But he didn't turn up, and so finally, and and they didn't kick him out. He just left. He said, "I can't take it. I'm not interested anymore." And so he wanted to get into the quote real world unquote, and uh. His grandfather supported him and said, listen, you, what do you want to do? He said, I want to be a farmer in New Hampshire, up in the country. 
And his grandfather, who had a little bit of money, bought him a small farm in Derry, New Hampshire. And Frost had gotten married early. He had, you know, four or five kids really right off the bat. And so he and his young family moved to Derry. And uh, Frost, you know, raised um, some vegetables and chickens mainly. He was a chicken farmer. And in fact, his first poems were published not in Poetry Magazine, as people think, but in Poultry Magazine. Oh, wow. Chickens. So, uh, and, and the truth is, Frost was at first a failed poet. He wrote poetry from the age of 18 to the age of 40 without getting published, except in Poultry Magazine, <laughs> right. one or two little newspapers, local newspapers. So he was not known. Uh, and then in about 19, I forget the year, 10, 11, he, um, his grandfather died. And Frost came into a reasonably small, a reasonable inheritance. He had got some real money. And so he sold the farm and he took his young family on the boat and his wife and he moved to England, he moved to London and then Gloucestershire, the countryside outside of London. And there he wrote poetry and he ran into some of the great poets of the era. He met Yeats, he met Ezra Pound, he met a whole bunch of younger poets and uh, fell into the literary scene. And his first two books of poems, he had already finished two or three books in manuscript, were published in a fell swoop by uh, a London publisher. And then, then he was rediscovered back into America from there. Henry Holt in New York published his poems after that. And so World War I started and Frost took off, got his family on the boat and went back to America. And just as his um, books started coming out in America, so he was from the time he got back to America in 1915 onward, he was a reasonably well-known American poet and, and, and popular by 1920. He was pretty popular. Can you tell us where, where in particular was it that like poetry got him thinking, this is what I want to do? What, what, was that an early on thing? Was that a later thing? No, Frost was, was from early age a reader of poetry. Okay. So even as a, I would say a, 10, 11, 12-year-old, he was reading the classic poets, you know, John Greenleaf, Whittier, Robert Lowell, yeah. uh, Henry Wadsworth, Longfellow, the American poets. He read Wordsworth. He read William Blake. Um, then he got into his teenage years. He was reading, you know, some Shakespeare and Milton, uh, Chaucer. But he really knew the English and American literary traditions very, very well. And so, and he was writing an imitation of them at first, you know? Yeah. His first poems, A Boy's Will, do read a bit like sort of pretty classic 19th century poetry, a very, very orderly rhymes and so forth. And, and then he breaks into his own voice here and there. But by his second book, he's really, and north of Boston, he's really himself. And it's got some of the most amazing poems in the language in there. A lot of them were written in England. You were talking about his, his, uh, his individualism was... It seems like at a time, especially when you were saying, what do people love about him? I think there's sort of this pure Americana to him. Mm -hmm. How did that go socially in, in, in his time over in the UK? How, how, what were his relationships like with Ezra Pound and Yeats? Well, to some degree, they saw him as a, a very cute, peculiar fellow. <laughs> this very American yeah. guy who has a kind of rough, strange American accent. But he did, you know, try to put on a bit of an English accent, which didn't work with any ton of him. <laughs> okay. And uh, and then he went back to he wrote to a friend. Uh, he said, "I'm going to come back to America and become Yankeeer and Yankeeer." So he he put on this 
role of being a kind of Yankee New England farmer and moved to the farm. He was never a tremendously good farmer. He was a lazy farmer because he spent too much time reading and writing poetry. Yeah. And, uh, and so, you know, a lot of his money in the later years came from the lecture circuit. Okay. I mean, once his books started being published, he, he kind of was one of the inventors of the poetry reading circuit. He'd go from college to college, library to library, giving readings and, and making a bit of money, getting a bit of money. So he didn't need good, that much money. Sure. He lived very, very modestly much, all of his life. There's a, I don't remember if this was in yours, but reading a, um, an account of him and Yates not getting along very well in, mm-hmm. in terms of their dispositions, Frost being sort of cheerful and enjoying sort of the surprising element, uh, the spontaneity of, that poetry can offer, and mm-hmm. them getting in quite a uh, discussion about, I guess, Yeats never wrote anything without, you know, chewing his fingers and spitting blood. And I, I just, I loved that account. I loved that uh, our, our American hero sort of going over and just showing them how to be cheerful a little bit. <laughs> well, I mean, Yeats was, of course, one of the great poets of all time. Of so, course, of course. And, and, and Frost did admire it. Frost thought there was something very special about Yeats. And I think he learned from Yeats, you know? Sure. So, so uh, and I mean, remember, Frost was a formalist always, like Yeats. Um, yep. Neither of them ever wrote free verse. Frost once said he, he spent too much time, you know, trying to learn how to write in meter to, to, to write in free verse. He said, writing <laughs> free verse, his famous line is, he said, writing free verse is a bit like playing tennis. With the net down, <laughs> so he wanted the net up there. Yeah, right, right. And in terms of his influence, do you think he ultimately lost that battle? Given today's, oh, no, I mean, Fro- no, no. Well, no. Frost won the battle in the sense that you know this is what poetry looks like. Frost 